0: Hello, my name is Rex. I'm new around here. And uh, no, we've been away for three uh, glorious weeks. And it has been wonderful. But it's so exciting to be back. My family and I try to follow this philosophy, and I would urge you to do the same. Divert daily, withdraw weekly, and abandon annually. Now, here's what that means. Divert daily. Each and every day, you should have a time, Where you divert away from your normal routine and you spend time just focused, you and the Lord, quiet time every day. Withdraw weekly. I would urge you to practice the Sabbath principle. And whatever day that is for you, I would urge you to carve out one day where you truly connect to God, to your family members, those dearest and closest to you, and where you just kind of cease the rat race, all the frenetic pace of trying to get ahead. One day a week, you withdraw weekly. And then I would urge you, if possible, this is not always possible, to, quote-unquote, abandon annually. That doesn't mean you become irresponsible, but you do abandon your normal responsibilities. Try to get away if you can. Even if you have to do a staycation and stay at home, which is often the case, uh, still try to get away from some of those normal things that you do I believe God really honors that kind of rhythm. And so we're, we've been excited to be away. We're very glad to be back. We're in a series from 1 Peter called How to Live Until Jesus Returns. And I'm so grateful for our lead pastors. Uh, that first weekend we were away, they preached at each of their congregations. And then the last two weekends, I'm so grateful for Pastor Justin, who's done a great job laying the foundation and getting us into this marvelous book called 1 Peter. I'm so grateful to work with colleagues like this. I'm grateful for every one of them. They're amazing men of God. But today I want to pick up where Pastor Justin left off. And we're going to look today at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. So let me set it up for where we're going. Dewey Bertolini, you may or may not have heard his name, He is a youth pastor in California, but he also, in order to be in touch better with young people, he's a substitute teacher uh, with some regularity, and that gets him out in the schools and gets him face-to-face with young people. He tells a true story about being in a sophomore high school class one day. He had finished his lesson assignment. They had a little time left, and so he started a dialogue back and forth with these sophomore high school students. And he asked them this question, what do you think is the number one problem facing young people your age? He thought they would say violence or parental conflict or substance abuse or, you know, uh, suicide or something like that. Unanimously, they said, it's boredom. We have nothing to do and no reason to do it. We're bored with life. One week later, he was in a different school, substitute teaching, a similar scenario developed. This time he asked, if I could have a youth expert, someone who really understands your age group, come in here and you could ask him or her any question you wanted, what would you ask? A guy on the front row shot his hand up, a guy named John. He said, tell me why I should get up in the morning. And Dewey Bertolini dubbed this generation as a generation without a purpose. What about you? Do you have a reason for getting up every day? Some significant, compelling reason? Do you know why you're here, where you're headed? Do you have a direction and a sense of purpose in life? Viktor Frankl was a Viennese psychiatrist and he spent Years in a Nazi concentration camp, and he made a profound statement when he said, if you give a man a why to live, he can endure any how. Give a person a why, a purpose, a reason, and boy, I tell you, they can endure all kinds of situational things in life. I don't think it's by accident that Rick Warren's book some years ago, The Purpose Driven Life, sold so many millions of copies. It's because people truly are looking for a purpose. I spoke to a young woman, very sharp young woman, recently between services on Sunday morning. She had just finished her law degree. Boy, she was sharp. I'm telling you, at her age, early 20s, got the world by the tail. It's unbelievable, the potential in this young lady. But she told her story briefly to me, and she said, but you know what? I'm just not excited about what I've prepared for. And I just don't know what God wants to do with me. And to be honest with you, I'm losing a little motivation, and it feels like there ought to be something more significant than this to life. And I listened to her and empathized with her and prayed with her. Do you have a reason to get up? Well, in this section we're going to look at today, Simon Peter outlines a number of things that every Christian ought to be able to affirm. Reasons for living, a purpose for life. And so when we ask, what am I living for, why am I here, Simon Peter has some answers. And I invite you to jump in now, take some notes if you'd like, jot some ideas down that you can maybe reflect on later, and let's see what God's Word has to say to us personally and corporately today in our own journey with Him. The first thing that we see is that we are living stones with a significant purpose in God's church. Look at what he said here, starting in verse 4. And coming to him, that is Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now here's what strikes me about that. We're familiar with other metaphors about the church. For instance, the church as the bride of Christ. That's a common one Paul uses. He says that We're the bride of Christ, and Christ's purpose is to purify us and get us ready for the time he returns. You talk about a good motivation to live until Jesus returns. We're to be getting ready for his glorious return. We're familiar with that metaphor. We also may be familiar with the one Paul uses where he calls the church a body with many members. And he says uh, one is like a head, one like a foot, one like a hand. Whatever your part is in the body, you're to live out that role and that calling that God has given you. But I don't think many of us are familiar with this metaphor. This is the one that God inspired Simon Peter to use. And he says here that we're not a a body, not a bride, but a building. Another B word. We're a building. And he's building us up together, and we're living stones in this building. And Jesus Christ is the one we come to as our living stone. He goes on in verse 6 For this is contained in Scripture Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. There are several aspects here to this stone that Jesus is, the most important stone in the building. He's a living stone, but then he says in verse 6 he's a precious corner stone. And to those who believe in him and trust in him, <coughs> he becomes a saving stone. He saves our lives from the wrath that is up upon us. And the Bible says in Romans 8:1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now if you ever had a reason just to thank the Lord Jesus and just to pause and say, God, I love you. Thank you for what you are to me. Thank him for being the precious cornerstone that is the most important stone in the church, and thank him for being your saving stone today. But I want you to know that this passage goes on to tell us that for those who disbelieve, for those who reject, for those who don't follow Christ, He's not a precious cornerstone or a saving stone. He becomes a stumbling stone. Let's read on here. He says here in verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You might want to circle that phrase, a stone of stumbling. And he... uh, And he goes on to say, in a rock of offense, for though they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Now think of that. The same rock that saves some becomes a stumbling block to others. Remember the rich young ruler in the Gospels? He came to Jesus and said, "What, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said, look, I've kept all the commandments from my youth up. And Jesus said something, that he never said to anyone else as far as we know in the, in the New Testament. Jesus saw right to his heart, right to the real issue in his life. And he said, in your case, I want you to go and sell all you have and give to the poor and you come and follow me. And the Bible says that he walked away sad because he had a great riches. He wasn't willing to allow Jesus to be in his life What he really is. And so Jesus became a stumbling stone. Folks, I want you to know that still happens today all the time. I see it all the time. People love to come to church, get close to Jesus for the inspirational value he can bring, for the cool teachings and value he can add to their life, for how he can help them (coughs) through their hard times. We love the message when it says, come and be comforted. We even love the message when it says, come and be changed. Because Lord knows we need some changing, don't we? I do, you do, all God's children need some changing. And so we love Jesus and we love his word when he says, come and be comforted, come and be changed. But often when Jesus says, come and be challenged, that's when he becomes a stumbling block to many of us. And we're unwilling to do what he said. So let me ask you a personal question before we quickly move on in our study. What is Jesus to do you? I, I'm getting personal now. Peter said that he's a living stone, a precious cornerstone. He's a saving stone for those who believe in him because they're not going to be disappointed, Peter said. NIV translates that, I think, they will not be put to shame. But he becomes a stumbling stone for those who disbelieve. What is Jesus to you? That is an incredibly important question. Now, what is that phrase about where it says there, uh, uh, you know, to this doom they were also appointed? Well, let me give you how Eugene Peterson who's a staunch Presbyterian, by the way, translates that because to many people that phrase suggests that God has just predestined some to be doomed and damned and there's nothing they can do about it. Here's what Eugene Peterson says in his paraphrase, the message. They trip and fall because they refuse to obey just as predicted. What was predicted in advance is that some would indeed stumble and fall. So let me say a quick word to to you here before we move on. When you became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, if that's happened in your life, when you went from exploring Christ to beginning in Christ as a brand new believer, he made you a living stone in this building called his church that he's building. And he has a role for you to play. Now, some Professing believers say they don't really need church, but I want you to know that a Christian without a church is like a tuba player without a band. A Christian without a church is like a soldier without an army. A Christian without a church is like a wide receiver without a football team. You see, God has designed this building that he's building so that we're better together. One stone out in a field may not have much power or significance, just lying all there alone, but when you put that stone in this dynamic building cemented together with other living stones, it has a role to play. And here's what I want you to know. When you got out of the baptistry, you got into the ministry. Or as I like to put it, when you got saved, you got ordained. There are no followers of Jesus who do not, do not have a purpose. Now, there's enough right there for a sermon. He's made us a living stone, a part of this dynamic building that he's building. We have a purpose. He has a plan for a life. God bless you. That's enough, right? But he says more. So let's look at a little bit more here that he says about what he's doing in us. The second major point I want you to see today is that we are holy priests with a privileged opportunity to glorify God. We are holy priests with a privileged opportunity to glorify God. Look at verse five again. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, in the Old Testament, God had prescribed a certain group of people called the priest, and they had a specific function to play in the worship of the nation of Israel. They kind of stood as a go-between between God and the people. And the people brought their sacrifices to the priest. And the priest, as mediators, offered those sacrifices to God. And there was a very precise way they were to do that. In fact, you can read in Numbers chapter 3 that two priests named Nadab and Abihu didn't do it as God had prescribed, and they were struck dead because of offering unauthorized fire in worship. You say, woo, boy. That's pretty arbitrary. No, God was sending a powerful lesson. We're not to come into worship in a flippant or arbitrary kind of way. It has nothing to do with not having fun in worship. God wants us to rejoice and be filled with joy, but He wants us to come prepared. And so here is another mind blower for some of you. God says to you today, many of you grew up by seeing priests as the leaders in your church, in your community. Maybe it was people who wore collars or had special vestments and had a special role. Well, here's a mind blower for you. God says today in the new covenant that I've made, all of you are priests. You're all priests. What that means is we don't have to pray through special saints or relatives of Jesus in order to get to God. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus has become our high priest. We can go directly to him. We go directly to God through Jesus. That is great news. And so let me ask you, as a holy priest, you say, who, me? Who's he talking about? No, that's what Peter just said you are. You're learning a lot about yourself tonight, right? You say, Pastor, I always thought of myself as a rolling stone, but you're telling me I'm a living stone. Yeah. I'm a living stone, a part of God's building. But now he blows your mind even more, and he says, you're a holy priest. Really? You. doesn't matter who you are. If you know Jesus Christ, if you have a relationship with him, you're a priest. How are you doing with the worship that God has called you to offer? How are you doing with that? Well, i want to suggest nine ways to you that we can make our sacrifices more acceptable to God in worship. God is pretty serious about this. I, I think we ought to be too. So let me ju- suggest nine ways that as we come to worship, we can be better prepared and our worship can be more meaningful. One, I would urge you to prepare your mind and heart in advance for worship. Now, that's going to mean different things to different people. For some of you, that may mean you need to go on a long run before you come to worship. So you really, really don't have any nervous energy and you can be focused and calm. For others of you, that may mean that you need to listen to Christian music on your way to the service. The corporate service for others need to read some scripture or maybe you need to think about how good God has been to you. But I'll tell you, I believe that Satan works overtime on a typical Sunday morning or Saturday evening as people are getting ready to go to corporate worship. Have you ever seen all chaos break out in your home just before church? It happens, right? And by the time you get to the church building, it's like you hate your family, you, you literally can't stand them. You're going, I'm in no frame of mind for worship. I am so ticked off right now, I can't believe we're late again. And all these things just fall apart before we go to corporate worship. Come in a frame of mind. Prepare yourself in advance. Two, come on time. I would really suggest that you make additional effort to come on time. Uh, you know, if we run into worship several minutes late... You know, huffing and puffing, wow, barely got here, got here just in time. Oh, we're a little bit late. I I don't think we've really well prepared. I love it when I see people arrive a few minutes early. Maybe find a seat or say hello to some folks around them and just begin to settle in and prepare themselves to give praise to God. Number three, be friendly. You know, worship is really a family activity. And we need to be warm and greet those around us. Say hi to some people. They're not going to bite you. Be friendly to people around you. Number four, when the service begins, I would encourage you to participate enthusiastically. Just for whatever is kind of natural for you. If the song calls for clapping, you can clap. If it calls for just singing out loud, sing out loud. Uh, Pray when we pray. Laugh when it's appropriate. All right. Get involved. Take some notes. Jot some things down so you can think about them later. Number five, I would encourage you to make your worship more meaningful to give an offering. What I want you to understand is that the offering that we receive at all of our locations is not some necessary evil to keep the lights on. What I want you to understand today, and if you don't get this, you're never going to go from beginning in Christ to close to Christ to becoming a truly Christ-centered person. What I want you to understand is that sacrificial giving is a profound act of worship, a profound act of worship. Listen to this verse from the book of 1 Chronicles. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Catch these next words. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And what you're doing when you do that is you're saying, God, you gave yourself for me. And now I give a portion of this bounty back to you. If you have children, number six, I would urge you, don't allow your children to be a distraction. Now, we love children at Grace Fellowship. I'll tell you, that is one of our top priorities. That's why we have more staff people per capita at each of our locations for children than any other single area. We love kids at Grace boy, we want them in our worship. We want them to be a part of the church. We want them to find out who the Lord is and follow him faithfully. But our kids' celebration ministries at all of our locations do a fantastic job. And so all I'm saying to you is, parents, if you have smaller children, whether they're, you know, really, really young like infants or toddlers or maybe grade school children, listen, take advantage of those fabulous ministries. They have songs that they're going to connect with. They have Bible lessons that they're going to readily understand. And it sometimes allows you as mom or dad to really focus and make worship more meaningful for you. Number seven, I would urge you to stay through to the end of the service. You know, uh, I just feel sorry for people sometimes who try to cut out early. Oh, I know. I know the temptation. You want to beat the traffic, right? You, you want to you get out before the next guy? I understand that. I'm, I'm kind of wired that way too. But I would urge you to think of it this way. Some of the most important things that happen when we come together happen in the five minutes immediately following the dismissal. I'm convinced of this. Many times, the most important minutes in the entire service are the first five minutes after we say goodbye, see you later, you know, see you next week, however, we're dismissed. Because that's often when we connect with people around us. That's often when we say hello to family, friends, when we really, really are making some important connections. So I would urge you not just to rush in and rush out. And in fact, if you do, the church will never feel like much of a family to you. Next, I would urge you to talk about worship as you drive away. Talk about the message. Talk about a song that spoke to you. Talk about something that happened, something that was most meaningful to you in the service. And I would urge you not to be too critical, honestly. Because, see, here's the deal, especially moms and dads, if your kids hear you just mostly be critical about the service. Ah, the music was too loud today. Boy, I didn't like that special song they did. It just, I just didn't like that. Man, I tell you, when are we going to sing more hymns around here? Or, when are we going to have more edgy music? That's what I want. I want to see some smoke around here. You see, we all have these different tastes and preferences and so on. But I would urge you not to be too critical because that sends a powerful message to your children, hey, church is just not worth it. Or hey, this is just a lame experience. And I think if we really knew the truth, I think we'd be amazed how many young people have been turned off because of the seemingly innocent critiques that their parents make of church in their presence. And finally, and this may be, this may be the most important of all, I would urge you to leave determined to live for Christ. I love that church that has the the plaque on the top of the doorway as the people exit the sanctuary. And the plaque says, as you go out into the parking lot and into the world, it says, now entering your mission field. Now entering your mission field. Boy, it's easy to live for Christ in here, isn't it? You got smiling Christians all around you, mostly positive people, people who believe kind of what you believe. Easy to live for Jesus. But man, it becomes challenging when we get out there. And I want to tell you something. If we really understand our role as holy priests, and that's what you are, brothers and sisters, if we really get that, We will understand that worship is far more than the songs we sing, prayers we pray, sermons we preach and listen to, communion we celebrate when we come together. Holistic, profound, biblical worship is our whole life. Can anybody say amen to that? Does anybody get that? It's your whole life. And that's why we often say we want you to represent Jesus well out there in the world. That's where we're really on mission for him. Your worship is just getting started as you leave. That's why Paul writes in Romans 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, look at what he says, in view of God's mercy to do what? Offer your bodies as living sacrifices holy and pleasing to God this is your spiritual act of worship when we live for Christ out there that's the most profound worship of all so what are you living for you're a living stone in this dynamic building that God is building you're a holy priest called to glorify God through your holistic lifestyle of worship. There's one final thing I want to add to this, and that is we belong to God. We belong to God and have a crucial responsibility to witness to the truth. This is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, verse 9. Look at what it says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is an amazing verse. You talk about a purpose for living. You talk about having a reason to be here. Somebody put it like this, my purpose is to go to heaven when I die and to take as many people as I can with me. Isn't that a great purpose statement? Isn't that a great life mission? Go to heaven when you die and take as many people as you can with you. I say that's a great reason to get up in the morning. But if that's going to happen, there are two things I believe that this passage tells us need to occur if we're going to... To do that, if we're going to be that chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, one of the things that we're going to have to do if that's going to really happen is that we are to declare God's truth. Notice it said there that you may proclaim, I've highlighted those words in your notes, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There are times when we don't need to be just silent Christians letting our life be our witness. One of the things that I'm most burdened for and concerned for, for the body of Christ as a whole these days, is that I'm, I'm a little concerned that so many of us don't know how to give a reason for the hope that we have. And so when all around us, our values and our beliefs are getting challenged on every side, I, I, I sometimes fear that we just kind of cower back and we don't know how to respectfully, tastefully, appropriately, but very effectively speak up when the opportunity comes to share with someone where the Holy Spirit has opened their life. We need to be God's mouthpiece. Too many of us Christians are arctic river Christians. We're frozen at the mouth. And we just miss those opportunities to speak up. But it doesn't stop there. There's another thing that needs to happen if we're gonna have this kind of impact and witness to the truth. That is, we communicate with others by living a distinctive life. Notice in verse nine again where he says, we're a holy nation. Now, he doesn't mean a geopolitical entity when he says a holy nation, okay? So all of you are to you know, patriots for the American flag, and I'm one of them. Uh, Listen, that's not what that's talking about, right? I love this nation. I'm a flag waver, but that's not what that's talking about. This is not a geopolitical thing. This is the people who truly belong to Jesus. He says, we're a holy nation. We're to be living distinctive lives. Now, Pastor Justin did a great job recently Just explaining to us what that word holy means. We often say, set apart for God, belonging to God, taking on God's character and wisely displaying that to the world. That's what it means to live a a holy or a distinctive life. And when those two things come together, we become audiovisual Christians. And that is a powerful thing. When you get the vocal and the practical action together, it is a powerful thing. It's like the two handles on pliers. If either one of them's missing, you lose your leverage. But if people see and hear, it's an audiovisual thing, and often the impact is great. And I want to tell you that people really are watching your life. And sometimes our lives do speak so loudly, they can't hear a word we're saying. And so if we're talking up for Christ and speaking for Christ, but but they know good and well we're a lousy husband, they know it. I'm sorry, we've lost some credibility there. If we're speaking boldly for Christ and doing what we ought to do, proclaiming his excellencies as the verse says, but they know good and well we're just a slacker as an employee sorry, we just lost some credibility there. If they know we're dishonest in business, if they know we slander people behind their back, if they know we're unfaithful as a friend, if they know we're irresponsible in the use of money, if they know we regularly abuse our bodies, just lost some credibility there. I believe we live in a day, just just my opinion here, I'm convinced this is true, when the lives we lead are going to become more important than ever. Now, as we wrap up, I want to focus now on just a couple of other things he says here real quick to try to describe this sort of distinctive life and kind of give an emphasis to this distinctive lifestyle he's calling for here. First of all, verse 10 he says, for you were, once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that says to me, if we've been the recipients of mercy and grace, we ought to be givers of mercy and grace. If you ask the average non-believer what are Christians most known for, and you give them a list of ten things, and one of them is mercy and grace, Mercy and grace will be number 10 on the list. It may be fair, it may not be fair, but that's the way we'd probably be characterized. So as receivers of mercy and grace, we need to be grace and mercy givers. We need to cut people some slack. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, you might want to circle those two words, aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. You say, well, what, what's the point there, pastor? How, what does that have to do with our purpose for living? That means that if we're to live lives and witness to the truth, we don't need to get too attached to this world. I've done a lot of flying on airplanes in my life. Tons of flying. I'm telling you, it'd be okay with me if I never flew on an airplane again. Those cramped little seats, the little pretzels they give you, the apple juice. Do you know what I've observed in all of my flying? You know what I've noticed? When you land at your destination and they taxi down the runway, go to the gate that's been designated, the lights are still on, no smoking, keep your seatbelt fastened. When those lights go off, when that seatbelt light goes off, listen, I have never, ever been on a flight, no matter how long or how short, where people looked around at one another and at the stewards and stewardesses and said, do we really have to get off this plane? Can't we just stay here and eat these little pretzels you give us and and drink this apple juice and just enjoy these cramped little seats? Can't we just stay right here for a while? Never seen that. As soon as that light goes off, often before it goes off, people are bolting out of those seats. They want to get out of there. Why? Why? Because a flight may be pleasant or it may be very unpleasant, but one thing that makes it palatable is that it's temporary. You don't want that thing to last forever. And that's kind of what our life is like down here. This is not our home. Don't get too attached. Your real home is up there. That's where you belong. Don't get too attached to things down here. Chill out a little bit. It's okay if everything doesn't work perfectly. It's just temporary. One final word as we close. He goes on to say, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Do you notice that phrase, which wage war against the soul? Many of you have said to me, Pastor Rex, I'm so frustrated because since I went from exploring Christ to beginning in Christ, it's like three steps forward, two steps back. I mean, I show some progress, but then I fall way back and backslide into old habits, and I'm so frustrated like this. It's like it's a battle every day. You're dead wrong. It's not a battle. It's an all-out crazy war you're involved in. Don't you get it? He says it right here. Abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. And the world and the flesh and the devil are conspiring together to destroy you to stall your progress. You're in an all-out war, Christian. If you're going to live with purpose, if you're going to live with a meaning in your life, you've got to understand you are not on a cruise ship. You're on a battleship. There's all-out war being waged for your soul. And finally, He says in verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. The world may put you down in slander, as he says there, but the one irresistible apologetic is an excellent life. And I'm convinced more than ever that in these days in which we live, where God's truth is being bombarded on every side, the one irresistible apologetic for the faith, even if they deny our truth, even if they deny our gospel, even if they blaspheme our God, a life well lived for the glory of God is a powerful, powerful thing. Do you have a reason to get up in the morning? Oh, if you're a follower of Jesus, he's given you a purpose as a living stone. He's made you a holy priest to glorify him. And he's called you to be a part of a holy nation that's gonna proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Father, thank you for the purpose you've given our lives. We have a reason to get up. We have a significant reason to just revel in every day because we're on mission for you. Thank you for calling us to such a glorious, glorious life. We give you praise. We give you thanks. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.